session with Dr. Farid Hulaku. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program, and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcasts on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book for this week is The Genetic Lottery by Catherine Page Harden. The Genetic Lottery, Why DNA Matters for Social Equality. So this title and topic really caught my attention. I saw some people talking about this book. And so I was excited. Actually, when I first tried to order it, it was sold out or hard to get my hands on, but recently got it and looking forward to reading this book, looking at DNA and genetics and how they actually are necessary for conversations about social equality. So that's The Genetic Lottery by Catherine Page Harden. The book of the week from last week that I will talk about tonight is The Comfort Book by Matt Haig. And just as the title implies, The Comfort Book, it's a very comfortable and pleasant book to read um, by Matt Haig, who is a English author. He has written also some books of fiction. Uh, a notable one is The Midnight Library, which sounds interesting from what I've heard of it, but I've not read it. And so in this book, The Comfort Book, um, the author, Matt Haig, shares many different little short stories. Well, I should say stories, short uh, snippets of different things that might give you some comfort. Some are literally one or two lines long. Some are maybe two, three pages at most. They're all very brief, but sharing different small things. Some are even quotes from others here and there. Some are some of his own personal stories, some stories of other inspirational figures. And some are even as simple as um, a recipe for making peanut butter on toast or about making hummus and why he likes making hummus so much. So it's a very personal and personable type of book where you can connect with it and you get to feel like you are knowing the author a bit better. And something he also shares several times throughout the book are his own struggles with mental illness where at the age of 24, he didn't think he would see the age of 25 because he was uh, suicidal and feeling so poorly dealing with depression, panic attacks, and even, I think, some OCD. Uh, But he dealt with some pretty significant mental health issues and mental illnesses, and he shares that throughout the book several times. And I think he has a memoir um, that I don't know the name of right now off the top of my head, where he also gets into details about his struggles with with mental health. And so this book, in that sense, uh, based on what he's been through, I think he also is sharing this with anyone who might just want to read something that can make them feel a bit more comfortable or help them get through a difficult time. And I think it definitely can do that. And I felt that as I read the book, different parts resonated with me 
in, in different ways. Some parts I, I was just thinking, oh, that's nice advice. Some of it I couldn't connect to as much. Maybe I didn't feel like it was re- relevant to me in some ways. Uh, but frequently he made some very, I think, good points, some of which I will share with you today. And so, as I mentioned, it's a comfortable read in the sense that also you can really read any part of the book. There, There isn't really a um, chronology to it, or you have to read page 20 to read page 40. You can just pick up any part. And as I mentioned, they're all very brief. The longest will be like three pages, um, but some of them are very short. So uh, I made some notes on a few that I really liked. I liked many of them and obviously won't share all the ones I like, but some specific ones I will share with you. So early in the book, here's one. It's The title is You Are the Goal. You don't have to continually improve yourself to love yourself. Love is not something you deserve only if you reach a goal. The world is one of pressure, but don't let it squeeze your self-compassion. You were born worthy of love, and you remain worthy of love. Be kind to yourself. And so I thought that was a very uh, sweet, kind one, focusing on self-compassion, the sense that you are enough. You don't need to do something to be worthy of love, which I think is sounds very, very simple, and it is, but it can be very, very difficult for people to genuinely feel that because of the world we're born in, and more specifically, the family and the environment you are raised in, you can have the sense that you are not just worthy of love just for being, that you always have to be better or earn that love. And so I thought that was very well put the way he explained it, that you are the goal. You don't need to improve. And paradoxically, yes, you can accept yourself, but it doesn't mean you don't want to keep improving or getting better as well. Sometimes people think if you accept yourself, that means you think you're good enough in the sense that nothing can be improved on. You can be good enough, but still see yourself as a work in progress. So I liked that. And that opposite page of that, there's this line that he puts throughout the book, nothing is stronger than a small hope that doesn't give up. Nothing is stronger than a small hope that doesn't give up. And so this sentence comes up throughout the book. There's actually a few times where it's written on a page 10, 12 times. Um, And so in a way, it's kind of like a mantra. Nothing is stronger than a small hope that doesn't give up. And I can imagine that quote, if you are feeling really, really down, you might not have a lot of hope. As long as you have a small hope that doesn't give up, it's nothing is stronger. That means you can still overcome whatever it is that you're facing. And that theme comes up a lot of facing your feelings, of recognizing whatever you're going through. It's not forever that we feel things, but it doesn't mean we're going to feel that way forever. Uh, here's another passage, another page. To be is to let go. Self-forgiveness makes the world better. You don't become a good person by believing you are a bad one. I like that one. You don't become a good person by believing you are a bad one. And so this also relates to this theme of self-compassion. Sometimes we think that we have to be hard on ourselves to improve or to become good. And so I think that's a clever way of putting it, that you don't become a good person by thinking you're a bad one and beating yourself up about it. Self-compassion actually helps you grow far better than beating yourself up. Here is a another one that I liked. Um, oh, this is a quote from philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. Life is understood backward, but it must be lived forward. 
I really love that quote. Um, I'd seen it before this book, but when I saw it, I had to make note of it. Life is understood backward, but it must be lived forward. And so, so often we might experience something or go through things that we can understand after the fact, um, but unfortunately life can only be lived forward, uh, barring some kind of um, quantum physics or other types of advancements. But we can only live our lives forward, but we can really make sense of it backwards, which make, make it difficult. And that's actually why at times for myself, but also with my clients, I will ask them to think about their future self if they're much older, whether it's on their deathbed or getting old of age and thinking what might they regret that they didn't do if they don't do in their lives. And we're at times in general, not very good at predicting some of these things of what we're going to feel in the future, what we're going to think in the future, but it can be a good way of recognizing the value of our lives and how it's finite. You don't live forever. And we all know that logically, but in a way, emotionally, we almost function that way, that I can always do this later. I can always find another time to do it. But sometimes I think it's good to go to our death and think about what might I regret not doing to put a pressure on ourselves to create a sense of urgency to push forward, to, to do something, to not wait. You aren't guaranteed a tomorrow, or you don't know how many tomorrows you'll be guaranteed. There might not be another chance to start, and you likely won't regret starting something sooner. So it can be good to give yourself that push. Here's another one I thought was interesting, not just because the second word is therapist, but um, it's, a, it's called a paradox, so let me read it to you. A therapist once told me that the most common complaint he heard from his patients was the feeling that they didn't belong. The feeling of being an imposter or of being outside things of not fitting in, of failing to connect easily with people. I found this as reassuring as it was paradoxical, that one of the most common feelings among people was the feeling of not fitting in among people. The comfort, then, is the weird truth that in one sense we have most in common with others when we feel awkward and alone. Isolation is as universal as it gets. And so I thought that was really interesting and very true, this paradox that almost all of us can at times feel like we don't fit in, that we're not like others, or we can't fit in among people. But in an interesting way, there's this paradox that although we think we're separate and so not like others, Almost everyone or so many people have that feeling. So really, even in that feeling, we are like so many other people. So I thought that was an interesting paradox uh, when he put it that way. So you might think you're the only one that feels a certain way, but very often it's actually many people or most people will struggle in a particular way with certain things. Here's another nice one. Uh, the title is Check Your Armor. Check your emotional armor is actually protecting you and not so heavy you can't move. Check your emotional armor is actually protecting you and not so heavy you can't move. Um, and I think this is a really nice way thinking of it as armor, but armor protects us, but also can limit how much you can move, how fast you can move, some of the things you can do. And this is exactly what we do in an emotional sense. We create this armor to protect ourselves, and usually we create this armor in childhood by looking at what's in our environment. Really, it's an unconscious way of making our way through our particular world. 
Maybe don't share too much of this kind of feeling. Always be on the lookout for not upsetting someone. Make sure you get someone's attention in this way. Whatever it might be, we learn all these ways that become our emotional armor that did protect us and likely were necessary to survive when you were a child. But now we carry this armor with us into our adult lives. And most of the time, it doesn't protect us so much as it prevents us from experiencing things, from having certain pleasures and joys, to actually recognizing that what we were afraid of is nothing to be afraid of at all. Oftentimes we have armor for something that actually we're trying to protect something that even if it were to hit us, it wouldn't hurt or we could handle it. But we think we have to carry that armor. So I thought that was a really nice way of putting it, that check your emotional armor because it might be so heavy that it's not allowing you to move, to move through your own life and to have various experiences. Um, Let it be. Here's another one. Let it be. Get out of your own way. Being yourself isn't something you have to do. You were born yourself and you didn't even have to try. In fact, trying is the whole problem. You can't try to be. You can only let yourself be. And again, another simple but challenging thing, because sometimes we'll give people advice, just be yourself, be yourself. Um, And it is kind of a trite piece of advice. But the interesting thing is usually we think, okay, I need to try to be myself or I have to put effort into being ourself. But we actually recognize that it's trying that gets in the way of being yourself. Being yourself is just you allowing it to be there or to be expressing yourself. It's when we try to protect ourselves again, uh, going back to that previous one, to not get hurt or get rejected or to fit in a certain way that we put this effort to actually not allow ourselves to be expressed, to not share that. So I thought that was an interesting way of putting it that you have to make sure you don't try because trying is what's getting in the way. Now, a book called The Comfort Book, um, you know, it was interesting for me because I do obviously think it was very sweet and uh, kind, and I think it can be helpful for anyone, especially if you're going through a tough time. But comfort, uh, if you've listened to my show often, you'll hear it. It's kind of like the boogeyman and something kind of bad that you shouldn't get comfortable, that the comfort zone is bad, that you need to get uncomfortable. And I didn't get the sense he was saying we shouldn't get uncomfortable. He actually says that a lot. So I wanted to read this one, which is actually titled The Discomfort Zone. A kind of timidity can set in with familiarity, a fear of change. We can end up stuck in jobs we don't like, in unhealthy relationships, with similar unhelpful attitudes. We call this the comfort zone, but often it is the opposite, a discomfort zone, a stagnation zone, an unfulfilled zone. It is surprisingly easy to walk through and out once we decide to. And what we see beyond the discomfort is in fact a deeper comfort, the comfort of being the best possible version of us, beyond the pattern or code of established behavior, less coded, more human. So here he's talking about actually the comfort zone, and he puts it in quotes, and that's something that I often talk about, that when we hear comfort, as is kind of the the theme in this book, but sometimes when we think of comfort, we think of a comfortable chair, which makes us feel good to sit in it, and that's good. But usually when we talk about a comfort zone in our lives, we're just talking about what we're used to and what comes easy to us, but it doesn't mean we feel good. And he talked about a stagnation zone, an unfulfilled zone, and that's usually what I would say is something like your comfort zone leaves you unhappy, unsatisfied, and unfulfilled, that you 
are used to it and it feels good in that sense, but it's not going to make you feel good about your life in the long term. And so we have to embrace discomfort and get comfortable being uncomfortable in order to truly grow and really live a fulfilling life for ourselves. And so there were so many other ones. The last one that I'll just touch on uh, before the commercial break, how to look a demon in the eye. Um, It's about how facing our negative feelings can be so helpful. And so the demon, this monster, our bad feelings, whatever it might be, a fear, we often think that it's a big thing that we can't face. But only when we face it will we realize we can overcome it, that it's not that scary, that we can get through this difficult time. And whatever it is that scares us in our lives that we think we can't face, once we do it, we see that we're actually much more capable than we think or that we believed. And also, when we have a feeling or a thought in the dark, it can cause a lot of harm. But when you bring it to light, it loses that power. So I liked that one as well. So the book is full of these snippets of knowledge, wisdom, stories, inspirational stories and some quotes. Very sweet book. I think a nice book to read. You can have it by your bed or just scroll through it or skim through it. Also, maybe a nice gift to give to someone as someone comforting them. Um, But I think it's a nice book to have when you're in a dark place um, to really help you feel a little bit better. So that was The Comfort Book by Matt Haig. Let's go to a commercial break. We'll be right back. back. So I discussed the book, The Comfort Book by Matt Haig. I definitely enjoyed reading it. And I did touch on this topic as, of comfort as this sort of bad word that sometimes comes up when we talk about self-help or self-growth or motivational, inspirational types of talks or videos and things. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in that as well. And so here we have another one of our uh, dilemmas or balancing acts that we have to figure out in our own lives. Sometimes we, for our children or other people, we might feel the same thing, but we have to figure out for ourselves because I thought it was very nice to have a book on how to comfort ourselves. And also it did talk about self-growth in ways also. Uh, But there are times when we need to push ourselves and to not necessarily give in to what's comfortable and it's not going to be black and white or easy to know which which one we need now. Do I need to take a break and be easier on myself right now? Or should I actually push myself? And both can be done with self-compassion and self-love. That to me is a very important part of it. But sometimes we have to decide which one we need to do right now. So that point I want to make very clear that you can and it would be beneficial to do both with self-love even if you want to push yourself it's not you're a loser if you don't do it or don't be this or don't be that and being hard on yourself Uh, it could still be in the sense that I want to do it for me I want what is best for me so here are just a few points on self-compassion Kristen Neff is someone who's very very Um, well-known. She wrote a book called Self-Compassion and a more recent one. I'm blanking on the title, Um, but she has done a lot of research and written about and talked a lot about this theme of self-compassion, how we often think, or there is this sense that if we are compassionate with ourselves, we think of it as this 
um, overly indulgent type of a parent that just never says no, gives you whatever you want. You don't have to work hard. You don't have to try hard. You just deserve to relax and have the world handed to you. And so often people think that this is what people think of or what they mean when they say self-compassion. It's just, I'm going to be too easy on myself. And that's not at all what self-compassion needs to look like. Genuine self-compassion means I'm going to love myself, so I want what is best for me, not just what is easiest in the moment, but I can love myself and think, you know what, I want to push myself on this right now because I know that'll be good for me. Or this would be more fun, but I want to work on this because I have this test tomorrow and I want to study right now because I want to feel prepared and do well. That's going to feel better for me long term. And so people often think the only way to push yourself is to beat yourself up or be really hard on yourself or have no flexibility when it comes to anything because that's the only way you can really do well or push yourself. But this is not true. And actually, what we often find is that people who are too hard on themselves don't push themselves. Or if they do, it could be inconsistent or areas of their life will be completely neglected. Because if I know that once I encounter a mistake, I'm going to beat myself up, well, then I might try to avoid seeing my own mistakes. So people who don't have self-compassion and who are very hard on themselves and beat themselves up, you will notice this pattern. They will sometimes hide a small problem or issue until it becomes a bigger one. Or if there is something big, they'll try to not look at it uh, until it becomes too big to avoid because they know that once they find that problem, they are going to have to punish themselves or it's too hard to accept that. The analogy that sometimes is used is if you have two kids and if they both break a vase and then their parent comes home, if the kid thinks that my mom or dad is going to beat me up if they find out I broke the vase, they're more likely to hide it, try to literally, in this case, sweep it under the rug. Whereas the child who knows their parent might be disappointed, but will still respond with compassion, they are much more likely to tell them, you know what, I, I did something, I broke this vase because I was playing in the house. The parent might be a little disappointed, but if they respond with compassion, this child will feel more comfortable telling them. And the other child will just try to hide it, pretend like it never happened. And so people do this to themselves in their adulthood. They hide things from themselves because they're trying to avoid their own punishment. So that was just a point about self-compassion and how it relates to this topic. So coming back to this issue of trying to figure out when is it that I want to push myself and when do I need a break? I think at some level it's important to look at the role that our intuitive sense of self has of knowing what we need in a moment. But I think it can be hard to completely trust that. So I'm very big on Listen to the feelings and the voice inside of you. Try to pay attention to what's going on inside of you. But I also think it's another simplification to just think your intuition is always right or it's always going to lead you the right direction. First of all, I think your intuition might be one thing, or but it not, it's not always going to have just one feeling. It's going to have sometimes competing feelings that might be in there. I don't think it's going to be just this one voice uh, to begin with. And secondly, we all have different ways of dealing with things that aren't good 
going back to the comfort zone, that might be the way that feels the easiest or the best to us, but that might not serve us. Even pathological things, things like addiction, which I think I'm going to end the show talking about. So what might feel really right to us in the moment might be really wrong for us. And so I don't think, unfortunately, we might want to let ourselves off the hook of having to do the difficult work of always looking at what's going on and thinking about what's going on. We can't just say, well, my feeling is this, so I'm going to do this. It must be right because it can never be wrong. I think that's a uh, looking for an easy way out or looking for almost like magical thinking. Here's another way that I have to or I allow myself to stop thinking. We look for that in multiple ways. We look for a rule that we can always follow, which is kind of like what this is, or to a person we can turn to. This person is a guru, a god, whatever they say is always right. So if I follow them, I know I'm always right. And religion, of course, can have a similar type of dynamic as well. So we look for some way to not have to think anymore. That takes away some of our anxiety of having to figure things out. So here we have this issue again. How do I know if I need to take a break or I need to keep going? And it's not always going to be clear. So you make a goal, I'm going to go run every morning or I'm going to go do this every day. And the regularity of it can be very good. And some people would say you should make no excuses. And I think the reason why this can be good advice is that we know that in the moment, we're almost always going to be drawn to doing the easier thing. We are biological beings, so and there's this way, this homeostatic pull towards doing the thing that's easiest and takes the least amount of energy, especially if there isn't some big drive that's life or death, because see, then that's going to have another homeostatic pull. If you are starving and needed to have food, you'll get up and expend energy to get food. But if you already have something, or if we're talking about, well, in 10 years, your health will be affected by what you do now it's a lot harder to build a big feeling around that. And that's why we have such a hard time. You know, you'll tell someone smoking will give you cancer, but they're like, well, I'm enjoying it right now. Or if I don't smoke, I get these withdrawal feelings that I can feel now. This pain and damage that I'm doing to my body that I'll feel down the line. Eh, you know, it's hard to get such a strong feeling about that. We feel things in the moment and it can be a lot harder to build a feeling imagining something in the future. And this is a, a challenge we have. So this is why the have no excuses type of a mantra or mindset, it can be very um, meaningful or it does have value because often we know that our tendency is going to be towards not pushing ourselves. So often when we think we should take a break, we probably can keep going. And this is actually another element of feelings that I can touch on here that I'm very big on be in touch with your feelings, try to understand them. What am I feeling? And then also deeper than that, why am I feeling this way? Whatever it is, you might think of it as just a physical thing like thirst or hunger and also emotional things, but whatever it is, we want to try to get in touch with the what and the why. But we also don't want to just let them dictate our lives, especially for this reason that relates to this topic, that in a way they're usually going to be a bit exaggerated in the sense that they're trying to help you survive. So if you knew, for example, that this um, machine that you have, let's say your phone, and they do this, when they start to overheat, if they get too hot, they'll give you messages and they might turn off if you're somewhere, let's say, out in the sun 
or if you take your phone in the sauna, um, if you are there, it's going to start overheating and it'll shut down. Now, if you were designing the mechanism that would respond to this, you would probably want it to shut down or give you signals before it's going to uh, actually break to, to protect it. And so in a sense, our emotions are the same way when they have even things like physical pain or when we have physical pain. Uh, I'm not a robot saying when they about humans when I also have physical pain. It's something that's a bit exaggerated when you think I can't take any more. Um, and this is something that ultra marathon runners and people who do some extreme types of um, physical feats, they know that. They say there's a sense you have that your body saying literally if you keep going, you're going to die. But they know it's not true. Now, people can get hurt doing those same kinds of things. So it's not that nothing can hurt us, but that these signals are in a way giving us a bit of an exaggerated warning signal. Um, it's also like that smoke alarm analogy you've maybe heard me use that I saw in Randolph Ness's book, um, Good Reasons for Bad Feelings. So that's the part where we do need a little bit of a push. Now, at the same time, we do burn out. And first of all, we just do have physical things that happen to us, obviously. But even you can burn out if you keep pushing yourself too much and feel like a machine. And so this is where you have to also be aware of this flexibility that even if you have a rule, which can be a good guiding post and a good map, at times you do need to take a break and take a day off. And some people will be on either side of this. I actually think I, in a way, do better with the rules, which can be good. And me and my brother actually were talking about this the other day. Um, it can be good because you can be consistent, even look at the, for example, the books of the week. That consistency can be good. But then it's also important to have flexibility. I think at times I can struggle with that. So this could be something for you to think of on this type of a balancing act, which direction do I tend to lean? And that could be a good way of thinking about it. If you're trying to balance and you're going down a tightrope, are you leaning more to the left or the right? And so you might find that when it comes to this issue of um, pushing yourself out of your comfort zone or of keeping a rule, but then having flexibility, can you be too rigid or too lenient? The optimal is some kind of you know, optimal flexibility where you are consistent yet flexible. But that's a nice ideal and a nice concept, but actually executing that in your life is much easier said than done. So uh, reading this book, The Comfort Book, because it's about comfort and this term comfort zone comes up a lot and pushing yourself out of your comfort zone, which I think is so critical to living a happy life. And he, he talks about that in the book too, about that. Uh, I thought it would be an important and interesting concept to carry over in this second segment. Now in the last segment, as I uh, alluded to in this segment, I want to talk about addiction and some thoughts about the concept of a higher power, which you see in 12-step programs and certain treatment programs that I think uh, some, some type of a thought about that came to me recently that I wanted to talk about. So let's go into our last commercial break and we'll be right back. Welcome back. So discuss the book today, The Comfort Book by Matt Haig. And in the previous segment, I was talking about comfort and how we at times need to be uncomfortable and finding a balance between pushing ourselves and and creating rules or creating types of goals that we have, but also having the flexibility to give ourselves a break and how it's not an easy thing to know 
which is the right thing to do in a given moment. And so we have to always be trying to pay attention and evaluate another balancing act that we have to um, have in this life. And so, as I mentioned before the break, I wanted to share some thoughts related to addiction and specifically looking at the 12-step program, not in any particular detail, but about a certain aspect of it. So um, you maybe have heard about 12-step programs, Alcoholics Anonymous, and they have it for a bunch of different types of addictions. And for many people, they can be very helpful. Some people don't like it at all. And like anything, it's not one size fits all, and it's not good for necessarily everyone, but it can be helpful. And one thing I've experienced uh, or I've heard many times for years, even starting in graduate school or even probably before graduate school, that some people have a hard time in the 12-step programs. Now, there's some that exclude this aspect, but there can be this focus on a higher power or God, and even it's part of step three. So let me read you the, the first three steps that will relate to what I'm talking about tonight. So step one, we admit we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Step two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. So that part of step three, especially that it says God, uh, some people can have a hard time with because what if you're an atheist or you don't believe in God or there's something about this that can feel religious and for some people that can be something that turns them off. So I'd heard that before that some people, they said, I want to do the 12 steps, but um, I don't believe in God or this emphasis of God. Even as I was looking up these steps, there are um, groups that say 12 steps, but no God or <laughs> things like that because they, they know that this is can be an issue for some people. But so you might be wondering how does this relate to what I was bringing up before. Um, so I was having this thought about addiction and, and how we can understand it. Of course, it's very, very complex and I'm only going to scratch the surface of some parts of it. But specifically going back to what I was saying in the previous segment, this sense of maintaining our homeostasis or figuring out what to do in the moment. And so really all of us in a way are not great decision makers when it comes to doing what's optimal for us long-term because our short-term feelings are pretty powerful. Those drives and those pulls to bring us to some kind of a homeostasis, whatever that might be. Are, are strong. So it's very easy. And that's why we have to be aware when we give people advice. Oh, just do this. It's so easy. Wake up at six and study for five hours every day or don't smoke anymore. It's so easy. Just do this or whatever it might be. That's why it's so easy to give someone else advice in this way, because you don't have to go through the feelings of experiencing what the hunger feels like or the sleepiness feels like or the withdrawal symptoms feel like. You can treat it almost like being a robot. We'll just do the best thing for the long term. What's the difficult part? But being a biological being, we have these pushes and pulls that make it much easier said than done, that tend to pull us towards making decisions that often are harmful for us. And so there is a, a line, you've maybe heard something like this before, that no one has hurt you more than you've hurt yourself in your life. And I think that's very true. 
No one has made decisions that hurt you in different ways. Also decisions that not do things. So it's not just harmful things you've done to yourself, but prevented yourself from doing things that would have been very good for you. So we have hurt ourselves more than anyone else has. So this is to me part of the, the human experience and the human condition that we are battling with this pull and push of doing things that feel good in the moment to doing things that feel good long term and finding some balance between them. And sometimes they can overlap. So it's not just a complete dichotomous push and pull. And also when we create good habits, it can feel good to do things that are good for us long term. And this is a really key point related to this whole issue. But if we start to do certain things and they become habitual and our brain starts to expect them and predict them happening, and we can get very tied into the results we get from them in some shorter long term, then it can feel good to do the things that are good for us. So I don't want to make it seem like it's one or the other, either something that feels good in the moment or something you really dislike. And sometimes it's something that feels good in the moment or feels more good than the other choice that we are dealing with. And again, here, going back to the previous segment, sometimes it can be okay to indulge and we could do that and enjoy life or certain aspects of life. It also would not be logical in a way to only do the thing that is good for us long term. Um, sometimes we, I think of this when people talk about saving money, that it can make sense to save money, but also if you never use your money, that can be uh, life not well lived either. So we sometimes think, well, always saving is better. Always saving is better. Well, for some people, it might be the opposite. They need to actually focus on using their money more to actually enjoy the, the money while they have it rather than waiting in, in some sense. So again, we have to think of ourselves in our own balancing act of which way we might be more biased or which way we might sway. So we have this push and pull that we experience of our own um, homeostatic drives and the feelings in the moment having a strong sway on us. And so addiction in is in some ways an extreme form of this, that we have gotten to a point where because we can't handle the certain feelings or we're trying to cope with certain things, we turn to either a substance, whether it's alcohol or some kind of drug, food, gambling, some kind of a behavior action that tries to quickly get us from this not good feeling to a more, a better feeling, either a calm feeling or a satisfied feeling or a feeling of feeling loved or connected in some way. And even drugs and alcohol and food, we might think that's not about connection, but it could be the sense of feeling connected in some way emotionally. And so we get very out of whack. So to me, addiction is in a way a very extreme form of having a difficult time of maintaining this balance that you are turning towards something that's very harmful for you in trying to cope with your feelings. And this is where we can also tie into last week, the conversation with Dr. Jennifer Galvin about toxic positivity. And I made the point that to me, one of the biggest markers of mental health and mental strength is your ability to tolerate negative, painful feelings. Not that you want them, not that you go towards them, but recognizing that they are part of life. So I have to be able to and willing to embrace them and to experience them and to tolerate them. Because by experiencing them, I learn through them. But also if I'm able to tolerate them, then inevitably when they come my way, I don't need to try to do something bad to 
get away from it quickly. I don't need to avoid it. I don't need to uh, find some way to quickly change my feeling, which is what happens when we turn to these addictive types of behavior, substances, whatever it might be. So if I can just allow myself to not feel good for a while and know that that feeling t- will pass, well, then I'm much less likely to do something unhealthy. And so when people go towards addiction, this pattern gets more ingrained. And I'm def- definitely simplifying and not explaining it in detail, what addiction looks like and in the brain and so many things are going on that I don't even really know and fully understand. I could blame it on the time, but it's also I don't know it all in detail. But There is this complete sense of getting out of whack with how we're dealing with things. And so in this way, addiction is this extreme form of, I can't make the decision for myself anymore. I can't decide what's best for me. And I think it's also powerful to consider when we look at addiction, that when people are addicted to a drug, we can feel so out of whack that without a poison, we can feel like we are dying. We can feel like we are not doing well. And really, that's what people experience. If someone is, let's say, addicted to heroin, and then you take the heroin away or they stop or they go to rehab, they start feeling intense symptoms, flu-like symptoms, nausea, horrible, horrible things. And what's the one thing that will quickly help them feel better? A little bit of heroin. That's the fastest way for them to feel good. Nothing else can make them feel better in that moment. And that's kind of an extreme of what they might have felt in the course of their addiction. But in that sense where they're feeling so down, poison, something that hurts their body, hurts them, is the only thing that's going to help them feel better in that moment. So we can see how out of whack their sense of, and we can all be in this to different degrees, but their sense of meeting their own needs, taking care of themselves emotionally has become. So again, addiction to me is in some ways an extreme form or it gets to a pathological form when we talk about an addiction as a diagnosis that we all go through because we all tend to make some decisions for ourselves that feel good in the moment, but that are harmful for us. Addiction is just an extreme form of that. So I hope this is also a way of, first of all, many more of us have an addiction than probably realize. But even if you don't and you think, oh, there's addicts out there and they're so this way or that way or you judge them, it could be good to realize that you likely are an addict yourself in maybe a smaller form or you're doing something like someone who is an addict is doing, but maybe in a smaller scale, but not something that's qualitatively different or makes you so different from them. So to me, coming back to this concept of the three steps, I think it does make sense that you first have to admit you're powerless over if it's alcohol, if you're it's Alcoholics Anonymous, alcohol, that I, I can't balance with alcohol or I can't. First of all, I might need it if now you've become dependent on it. But even still, the way I cope with alcohol or the way I relate to alcohol is something that I can't myself keep in balance. I can't be someone that can occasionally drink or can do it in some small degree. I can't do that. And so the part of having to have necessarily a higher power to me, it can be that for many people and it can be a spiritual and religious journey for them. So I'm not saying don't do that. But to me, essentially, the concept of what we're looking at is I'm realizing I can't make the decisions myself. 
for myself, which can in some ways feel weak, or you might think we should be able to and be strong enough. But I think this is where surrendering into our own weakness or our own fallibility can actually help us become the strongest version of ourselves. That you know what, when it comes to alcohol, I can't make the right decisions. I need something outside of me, people, a group, a sponsor um, to do that. And I'm not in, in a way trying to promote 12 steps as the way to get out of addiction, but using some of their language and using that type of mindset where I think it does make sense because we're realizing I can't be the one to make the decisions. It really just, that's how it is. I'm realizing it can't be me to only be the one. Of course, you have to live your own life and you can't constantly be under some kind of, let's say, surveillance. But that's why people, when they have a sponsor 24-7, they want to be available because of that quote-unquote moment of weakness when it hits. You have to be able to call on someone to help you make a better decision that you might make on your own. So this concept of it has to be a higher power that's God, I can get that, that can have value for people. But to me, it's more the sense that I'm realizing I can't make the decision for myself. And to me, we all would benefit for that. In a, in a strange way, I can make better decisions for you and you can make better decisions for me, of course, with some communication because you're the one that's getting the messages from inside your body of what's really going on. So I need that. That could help each of us give that feedback. But still, really, in a way, if we let someone make decisions for us, it would be better in that way of that long term. And so when we get to addiction, it's that you've gone to such a bad place that you know you have to just completely give up and you lose some things. You lose some of that sense of freedom that even when I say that people make decisions for each other, you think, well, I want to, I don't want someone making decisions for me. I want to do it myself, which makes sense. But someone who's dealing with addiction, the problem is so big, they're willing to surrender that freedom for that sanity to be able to live a life that they can be okay. So we can understand that. So just this point, uh, as I'm wrapping up the show, to me, it was just striking me that we all are realizing in a way that we can make bad decisions for ourselves. In addiction, this gets to an exaggerated form. And so this higher power, but it's really an outside power. I can't make the decision. Something outside of me must help me make the decisions because I won't make the right ones myself. So just some thoughts about that that had come to me recently. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. As always, a big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. Hope you have a wonderful night. Mm-hmm.